this past week, uh, my wife Katie reminded me of the story from this book called The Hiding Place. Has anybody ever read this book? You ever heard of this book? It's by Corey Tinboom. Uh, if you have not ever read this book, you need to read this book. Absolutely need to read this book. I don't recommend a whole lot of books to you, uh, but I do recommend some. And this one, you've got to read. You see, Corey Tinboom uh, was a young girl in, Katie, help me, was it Holland? Poland? Holland? Well, we, yeah. Uh, and when the Nazis uh, invaded and took over in World War II, and her family uh, were followers of Christ, but they wanted to take care of the Jews and love the Jews, and so they built this, they had this place in their house where they would hide the Jews. That's where the name of the book comes from, The Hiding Place. And they would hide the Jews there. Well, eventually, they end up getting betrayed by someone they trusted. And uh, the Nazis come in and grab Corey's whole family and take them off to separate concentration camps, except for Corey and her sister, get taken to the same one. And uh, if you know much of history, concentration camps are horrible. Um, deplorable, terrible, meant to humiliate and uh, denigrate and then ultimately execute <laughs> uh, most of the people they had in, in incarceration. And in the concentration camp Corey and her sister were in, her sister ends up dying in the concentration camp. And then Corey is let go one day, randomly, is freed from the concentration camp. And uh, it was, according to records, a fluke. Because a couple weeks later, every other woman who was of Corey's age were put in a gas chamber and killed. But we know it was not a fluke. God got her out of there just in time. Because what Corey did when the war ended is she went around and told people about Jesus and how Jesus brought her from the testimony and, and challenge of her sister through that terrible time in a concentration camp with eyes fixed on Jesus uh, in a powerful way. And uh, Corey tried to minister to people, telling them to forgive some of their friends and family members who had betrayed them to the Nazis. And now they have to live alongside them, neighbors and friends and mothers and children who had betrayed them to the Nazis, saying, you, you forgive them. Jesus forgave you. You've got to forgive. I know it's hard. It's difficult. But you've got to forgive. And the grace of Jesus is for all of us, all of our sins, no matter what the sin is. He has forgiven us all. And Corey went all over doing this. And she went into... Germany, where some of the most difficult areas of forgiveness were needed, um, because some of many of the Nazis weren't arrested and put in prison. Some of the higher ups were, but they just went back to their lives in Germany. And so she would walk in there and preach forgiveness and teach forgiveness and showing God's love to the people around you. Well, at one of these churches in Germany, she she taught about God's love. She shared the gospel. And uh, she steps off the platform and she's, you know, kind of in a receiving line and people are coming by and shaking her hand and telling her how much this story of, of grace and forgiveness really meant to them. And then she sees a face coming towards her down that line of people. And she knows immediately who it is. It was one of her tormentors from her concentration camp. Not just anyone, it was one who stood at the shower door 
when the women would disrobe and walk through the shower and the things he would say and the looks he would give and <clears throat> the, the uh, unkind and, and deplorable things that went on. And she saw his face coming. And she knew how she felt. She writes in here a feeling, uh, having these incredible angry and vengeful thoughts as he walks up to her. And he says, I've got to read you what he says to her when he gets to the front of the line. Uh, let's see. He says, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. So in his statement, he, he's declaring he's been saved, whether it was previous or, or in that meeting that she just shared the gospel. And it, she says, he raised his hand to shake my hand. And she writes in there, I could not physically raise my hand to shake his hand back. Here is a man who was one of my tormentors, who at his hands, along with his Nazi buddies, resulted in my sister dying. But she, all this happened in just a few seconds in her head. She begins to think and pray. She says, Lord, I know your forgiveness. Lord, I know your love. And you instruct me, love your enemies. Here is my enemy. I cannot love him. And she said in that moment, she came to, the Lord gave her a realization that not only does the Lord give us the instruction, love your enemies, but he also gives us the love to extend to them. And she raised her hand and took his hand and shook his hand. And she said in that moment, something that she thought previously was impossible, unimaginable love and forgiveness, she said, flowed through her arm and into his. And the message she'd been communicating to everybody about love and forgiveness, she lived out right there in that moment. You see, if anybody were to think, is anybody too far gone? That's the title of today's message. How far gone is too far gone? How, if somebody is too far gone, we would think, okay, let's go through history. Well, got to be a Nazi, right? I mean, they did some terrible, terrible things. And here's a woman who was actually there, who was actually tortured by them. Somebody who's too far gone, one of these torturers. And she offers up love and forgiveness to him because of the love and forgiveness that was offered to her. So in answer to this question, we're going to see something similar to this. In Genesis chapter 44, how far gone is too far gone? Is anybody too far gone? If you think through your life, who are some, don't say anything out loud, have you ever possibly thought, well, that person is too far gone? They have made some decisions that have resulted in where they are, and, and may it be on their own heads. They are just way too far out there to be brought back and do something powerful. It's over for them. How far gone is too far gone? Here in Genesis 44, where we're going to be today, it's on page 38. If you need a Bible on the rack there. It'll also be on the screens, whether you're watching here in the room or watching online. Uh, now that we've got the technical glitch fixed and it's streaming again. Um, you see, when we go through the life of Joseph, and Joseph has had some difficult situations. He's had some moments where undoubtedly he did not like his brothers very much. May have very well thought, they are too far gone. Because when he was 17, his brothers betrayed him. 
talked about murdering him, but instead of murdering him, one of his brothers spoke up, let's not murder him, let's sell him into slavery and let the slave masters down in Egypt kill him. So it won't be our fault he's dead, it'll be their fault. We'll just sell him to them and he'll die at their hands. And so they sell him into slavery, he gets accused of a crime as a slave and falsely accused of a crime, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison. But while he's in prison, he interprets some dreams. God, he has this gift from the Lord, he interprets these dreams, and one of the guys he interprets for gets out of prison, serves under Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who ends up having some dreams and needs somebody to interpret. Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and gives him some wise counsel about what to do about those dreams. And the Pharaoh liked his interpretation so much that he elevated Joseph out of prison and put him in charge of the whole country. Second in command, only Pharaoh is over him. He reports to nobody else. So Joseph's in charge of everything uh, under Pharaoh. And uh, at the time, there's this great uh, seven years of, of, of great crops. And Joseph gathers in all these crops for Pharaoh. And then there's going to be seven years of terrible famine. And Joseph starts selling the stuff that they had been gathering for seven years. And this, this famine is terrible and, and rough, and it, it goes on for a couple of years. And then Joseph's brothers and the rest of his family, living a little ways away, are experiencing the same famine. And so they go down to Egypt to buy some food. And so they go down there to buy food. Now, remember, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. Now it's 22 years later, and he's 39. His whole family thinks he's dead. Even his brothers who sold him into slavery think he's dead. And they walk in to buy food from the second-in-command of all of Egypt, and it happens to be their brother, but they don't recognize him. Not only is he 22 years older, he's 39 rather than 17, and as we said a few weeks ago, I don't know about you, but I look different when I'm 39 than when I was 17. Well, he looks different. Not only that, guys who are Hebrews, they would grow their hair long, and they would grow long beards and uh, all this, but in Egypt, they would shave everything. No hair anywhere on their heads. And so not only does Joseph look 22 years older, he's completely bald and has no beard. And so they walk in. They have no idea who he is, unrecognizable to them. And so they are asking for food, but Joseph knows who they are. And so he, this, this anger and animosity rises up within him, and he starts to speak in anger to them and accuse them of being spies in the land, which carries the sentence of execution. And they, and they argue back, well, we're not spies. We have a father who lives over there. We have, we have a younger brother we left back home. And we have another brother who's died. And we've just come down here to buy food. We're not spies. And Joseph continues to speak harshly to them uh, and, and, and give them great fear. Joseph ends up taking one of the brothers hostage and holding him in jail. And he says, if you want him back to prove your story is right, you need to bring back that younger brother you left at home. Go home, bring him back, and I'll let this other brother out of jail. And so they go back, and they tell their father this, and their father's desperate now, believing Joseph to be dead, and now his other son, Simeon, is in prison, assuming him to be killed in Egypt, because that's what Egypt was known for at the time. And uh, so they're in desperate straits, they're in great fear, they run out of food, and so they got to go back now to Egypt to buy more food. They said, okay, we've got to go back to Egypt to buy food. How are we going to get this food? We've left our brother there to, to rot in prison. And so they come up with this scenario that they're going to take, really, everything they have to try to buy the favor of this man who's in charge of Egypt. And so they take all this stuff down there. They walk in. Joseph sees them again. 
And Joseph, actually, he invites them to lunch, which they did not expect. Because now they've got their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is the full brother of Joseph. The other ones all have different moms, but Benjamin has the same mom as Joseph does. And so Joseph sees Benjamin, who he hasn't seen in 22 years. When Joseph left, when he was sold into slavery, Benjamin was seven. Now Benjamin's 29. And Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. He invites them to lunch. He gives Benjamin the biggest portion at lunch. And that's where we arrive at Genesis 44. This is where we are. This, is, this moment is happening now. Genesis 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, Joseph, remember, I don't know, if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard this is the way Joseph played it out last time they came. This is what he did to them to, to really instill fear in them, to make it look like they stole the grain. They stole the food. They kept the money and stole the food. And so he does it again. He tells his steward, the, his, his head servant, put all the money back in there. Fill the sacks up to bursting. Put the money back in the top. And take my silver cup that they probably saw me with at lunch and put it in the sack of the youngest son. Verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So we see Joseph is again planning to deceive and induce fear in his brothers. Now we know from 2 Timothy that God did not give us a spirit of fear. And so the spirit of fear has to come from somewhere else. The spirit of fear has to come from the enemy. And so Joseph instilling fear in his brothers is surrendering to the temptation of the enemy to use this, this form of manipulation in fear against his brothers. He's using it against them as though they are his enemy. And so the brothers were the ones who had caused great hurt in Joseph, great fear in Joseph in the past. And now Joseph is the one who's doing it to them. They've kind of swapped places here. And, and he even accuses them of taking this cup, which he says that Joseph practices divination, which he doesn't. But he's just throwing out another lie to try to sell it to them. Look at verse 6. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So the brothers were absolutely convinced they didn't have the cup. They, 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 in their minds are thinking, there's absolutely, there's under, no circumstance that would have transpired to bring it about that one of us has this. We, we do not. We did not steal last time. We didn't steal this time. It's not there. Whoever has it, whoever did this, may they die. That's how sure they are they don't have it. It's like they're, they're swearing they don't have it. Verse 9. Uh, no, we did verse 9. Verse 10. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found guilty with it 
shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So the servant knew what he was doing. He knew it was in Benjamin's sack. But he also started with the oldest and went to the youngest. How, how would he know who the oldest was unless Joseph had told him? So he started with the oldest and went to the youngest, knowing that as soon as he opened the youngest sack, it's going to be right there on the top. As soon as he opened Benjamin's sack, it's going to be right there on the top. And there it was, verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So they grieved. They, they could not believe. Benjamin had the cup. How Benjamin the most innocent of all of us, and he's got the cup. They, they, they don't understand how this is happening. Just like last time, their, their money was found in their sacks, and now here it is, the money's in their sacks again, and the cup that they just swore that whoever had it would die. And now Benjamin, the one that they were to do everything possible to protect, they have just committed to death. And so they load everything up, and they head back to the city, because they're not going to go back home without Benjamin. They're not about to leave without another brother. Uh, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before, the, before him to the ground. Now, I want you to notice something. Uh, it's the first time this has happened. Judah is singled out from his brothers. And Judah's not the oldest. He's not the old, Judas is Judah is the fourth oldest. But the oldest had lost his place because of some decisions he'd made, and so had the next few. But now at this point, Judah, the fourth brother, is singled out just by the, the author here. And it says, Judah and his brothers came into Joseph's house. And there's a reason for that, that Judah singled out. Look at verse 15. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? See the future? Do magic? He, he's really trying to sell the deception with his brothers here. Verse 16. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. What Judah says here, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, they're not guilty of stealing the money. They're not guilty of stealing the grain. They're not guilty of stealing the cup. What Judah's talking about is the guilt they had in selling Joseph. Because Judah was in his brothers. Judah was a part of the process. Judah sold his brother. And he's saying, God has found out. It, it, all that stuff we did in the past is now come to pay us back everything we did we sold our brother to be a slave in a foreign country and now he's here and now it's, it's very significant that Judah's the one suggesting this because not only did he sell Joseph it was Judah's suggestion to sell Joseph into slavery it was Judah's idea to sell him Judah's the one who spoke up and said let's sell him into slavery let's sell him Assuming he's going to be killed, let's sell him and get rid of him so he's not here anymore. And now Judah's saying, he's confessing before Joseph this situation. We were guilty, we were wrong, we were sinful in doing what we did in the past. And now here we are, and 
we have arrived at the time of our punishment. Look at verse 17. But he said, Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now remember that they had sworn to their father they were bringing Benjamin home. They had sworn. They said, if you have to kill anybody, I'm going to bring my brother home. May it be on my own life I will bring him home. And now they're hearing from this man, the second in command, who happens to be their brother. They don't know it yet. They're hearing from him, no, I'm going to keep him prisoner, and you all guys are going to leave. And Judah can't stand this. He just can't. But not in pride, not in anger, in a different emotion. Verse 18. Judah went up to him, approached him, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the, the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes uh, with us, then we will go down. For if we cannot see the man's face unless our brother is with us, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you shall bring down my gray hairs to evil, to Sheol, the grave. I don't know if you've picked up on Judah's own words and then him quoting his father Jacob, but the love that's expressed is solely for Joseph and Benjamin. He says he loves his younger brother. He loves his younger son, Benjamin. He loved his other son who died. He doesn't say anything about Jacob loving the other ten brothers because it's obvious what's messed up in their family dynamic, and the brothers know it. But they, even though they don't receive the same love from their father, they still love him, even in his flaws. And they want to bring back Benjamin to him, even though they're is a struggle within them about that moment. And so Judah keeps speaking in verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Now, What's interesting here in, in Judah's begging for Benjamin's life is this is the opposite of who Judah used to be. Judah wasn't like this. He made some very prideful, sinful decisions. That He was all about himself and not caring about other people. He got rid of Joseph. And now he, he's before Joseph, not realizing it's Joseph, begging to save Benjamin's life. 
when it was his suggestion that got rid of Joseph originally. And that's from Genesis 37. Judah suggested to sell Joseph into slavery, thinking he would die there. But when he saw his father's reaction to Joseph being gone in Genesis 38, Judah was humbled. And we see it in his expression to his father there in Genesis 38, verse 26. He was humbled with a desperate realization of his own need for mercy and grace. Uh, Stacy, do I have Genesis 38, 26 in there? I can't remember. If I, there it is. Um, in this moment, with some decisions he had made there in Genesis 38, he expresses before everyone watching his unrighteousness uh, and, and, and his flaws. And he, he's never the same after this moment in Genesis 38. He's a different person because he realizes that he is a sinful person and he needs grace and he needs mercy. And we see him living that out here in Genesis 44 when he's talking to Joseph. He's, he's demonstrating great humility before Joseph, admitting his guilt, admitting his sin, begging for the life of Benjamin, saying, take me instead. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the life of Benjamin. Judah went from selfish and loveless to selfless and sacrificial love. He's done a complete 180 in his life. And, and it's right in front of Joseph. Joseph is seeing this. Joseph is witnessing this. And he's watching this. Look at verse 32. Judah continues. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do, do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So he says to Joseph, I would rather be your servant and die here in Egypt than allow my brother to be a slave. Something has happened to him in this period of time. He's, he's a changed person. He's completely different than what he was. Because Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, uh, his brothers had thrown him into a cistern, which was a giant hole in the ground. He, didn't, he couldn't see his brothers, but he could hear them talking about his fate above the hole. And the murderous brothers, the one who had killed many people, were talking about killing him. But then Judah speaks up, and Joseph knew the voices of his brothers. He knew who it was who said, you know what, let's don't kill him. Let, let, them, let's, let that not be on us. Here comes some slave traders. Let's sell him and let them kill him so it's not on us. And so now for 22 years, that voice has been ringing in his head the whole time. The voice of Judah saying, sell him so they can kill him. He hears it when he goes to sleep. He hears it when he wakes up. He heard it when he saw his brothers walk in for the first time. And that anger welled up within him. And now he's witnessing something in Judah he never thought he would see. Desperation. Humility. A willingness to say how wrong he is. A willingness to sacrifice himself to slavery and death in the place of his brother. Where before, he sold him for money. Judah's a completely different person. And so what we see in Judah... Is what we can see in our lives today. How far gone is too far gone? 
No one is too far gone to be found by God. Nobody. Nobody is too far gone to be found by God. If you're still breathing, God still got you here for a purpose. No, you may think that person did such and such and, and they made their own decisions and the life they have is their own fault. No one is too far gone to be found by God. Paul was a murderer when he was found by God. David was found by God and then he went and murdered and committed adultery. He repented and then after all of that, he was called a man after God's own heart. After he did the terrible things. No one is too far gone to be found by God. Judah, the seller into slavery, the man who makes poor decisions, is not too far gone. And now he's demonstrating that to the very brother he sold into slavery. God got a hold of Judah. And you know how much impact that had? You know who one of Judah's descendants was? Jesus. Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. Judah became a descriptor of Jesus. That's how far he came. When God finally got a hold of him, when Judah finally gave in to God, one of his descendants was Jesus. No one is too far gone to be found by God. He's with you the whole time. He's there if we just simply turn to him. Nobody, no matter how far it takes, no matter at what point it is. And we see this. Mm. Here we go. Go to, go, to, go to Luke 23. Flip over. You want to see it again? Jesus. Arrested. On the cross. Moments from breathing his last breath. What's the last thing he does before he dies? Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Jesus is being mocked. Jesus is being made fun of. He's being humiliated. His guts are spilling out. He's bleeding all over the place, and he's up there on one of the most cruel forms of execution in the history of humanity. Uh, verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, another form of mocking. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he turns and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In the middle of saving the world, Jesus stops to save one person. This is his whole purpose, dying on the cross. 
He puts off breathing his last breath because the guy on the cross next to him needs to be saved. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to breathe my last yet. Because even this guy who's being executed for a just crime, he, he did the crime and now he's doing the time. He's being executed. The guy's on the cross bleeding out, have, having the terrible pain just like Jesus. And the guy's admitting, I deserve this, but I need a savior. And Jesus turns to the guy and says, you're going to heaven today. You get ready. You're about to breathe your last breath. I'll see you in just a minute. I'll see you in just a minute. Jesus stops in the midst of saving us all to save the one guy on the cross. Man, I can't wait to meet that guy in heaven. I mean, you think everybody in heaven is so thankful to be there and so, so excited to be there. How excited do you think that guy was when he died and then awoke in heaven? Pain instantly gone, experiencing heaven. When a few moments before, he was destined for hell and Jesus saved him a phrase. The man believed, Jesus, when you come in, he's acknowledging Jesus' sovereignty. He's acknowledging that Jesus is God. Even as Jesus is dying, when some of the own people, some of the people in the crowd who were witnessing the same thing had trouble under, Jesus' own disciples had trouble understanding how the Savior could die. The man on the cross had more faith than Jesus' own disciples. <laughs> and he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, that's enough faith right there. You're coming with me. Jesus, to Jesus, the man on the cross, receiving capital punishment, was not too far gone. Moments away from death, not too far gone. No one is too far gone to be found by God. No one. No one. That family member you can't stand, that addict you saw last night walking the street, that person you see on Facebook, that you keep wanting to unfollow them because you just can't stand them. No one is too far gone to be found by God. Nobody. Everybody needs just as much Jesus as you got. And he's coming for all of them. Everybody. They're still alive. He's coming for them. And he's put us here to bring Jesus to them. He's put us here to bring that realization to them. In Judah's life, he put somebody in his life to bring him the knowledge that he needs. It was a young woman named Tamar. You go back and read that. It's Genesis 38. To realize how much Judah needed God. God put Jesus on the cross between these two criminals because that guy, he, God knew, needed to be saved. He knew that guy needed to be saved. And so his time came up. He got called up to be executed that day, undoubtedly. He was so filled with fear and anxiety. And then all of a sudden he realized he's getting crucified next to Jesus. And so even though it's painful, even though it's terrible, he's put there because he's next to the one who's going to bring him salvation. That's what it's about, guys. He's put people in your life who need Jesus because you've got him. No matter who it is, no matter what they've done to you, no matter how bad it is, no matter uh, where it has brought that person, if you've got Jesus, you're the one who can, who can help them find God. They're not too far gone, no matter what you think about them. <clears throat> They're not too far gone. Nobody. How is Dequeen, Arkansas, Sevier County, Southwest Arkansas, going to be found by God? 
by those who've already got him. Everybody here needs Jesus. Everybody. Everybody needs Jesus. And that is how this place is going to be turned around. Jesus. That's how lives are going to be changed. Jesus. That's why a film crew came and filmed a documentary at the jail. It wasn't because of some good idea. It was because Jesus brought a good idea to some people. And Jesus changed lives. He's the one who changes lives. There's not enough self-discipline in the world that can do what Jesus can do. Jesus changes lives. No one is too far gone to be found by God. And we got something coming up in a few weeks. I mentioned it earlier. Again, if my guys are paying attention out in the hallway, they're going to come help me. I'm going to need some more guys to help me too if they don't come. I told them, I said, y'all better be paying attention. Come ask for your help. And everybody in the room and online is going to know you're not paying attention if you don't come. Somebody's moving. We'll see. Maybe, maybe, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're telling somebody about Jesus out there in the hallway. Uh, but I'm going to need some help. Can I get some men to come and help me real quick? I need like three, four, five, six guys. You need to be strong. We're going to take this piece of the stage, pull it out. It's got to pull out, pull it out. It's, it's heavy as I'll get out. Stand it up on its end, and we're going to slide it that way. Now the other guys, can y'all come over here? So, uh, two or three of you slide that stage piece that way. Right outside that door, there's a pew. I want y'all to bring that in. That puppy's heavy. Yes, it is. I know, I pulled it down that hallway with a suit on yesterday. No one is too far gone to be found by God. Jesus is coming to find anybody and everybody. That's fine right there. I'll fix it later. Don't worry about it. Thank you, guys. At the end of October, you just set it right down here in the front, guys. Just right down here where that stage piece was. We're having this event called Nights of Hope because we want to give hope to people. People need hope. And the only one who can bring hope, that's good right there, yeah, is Jesus. Thank you so much, guys. Guys from the hallway did come. Thank you. That's good. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> and that this pew is going to be here from now until then. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, it's going to be right here. It's probably going to be a little more centered. Uh, I'll fix that later. It's going to be a little crazy. Uh, uh, but it'll be here. Because what's on this pew, I've got pads of sticky notes and little golf pencils because I couldn't find any pens. Uh, they've all been sharpened, so they all work. And what I'm asking you to do over these next few weeks is, is we pray for nights of hope. And we pray for people who need hope, people who need to be found by God because they're not too far gone, no matter who they are, is we're going to write names on these pieces of paper. Or maybe you don't even know the person's name. It's just guy I see at gas station every Monday. And you're going to write that on this piece of paper, and you tear it off, and you're going to stick it on this pew. And we're going to pray for these names for the next four or five weeks. Because this is going to represent somebody that I'm bringing to Nights of Hope. Somebody who needs hope. Somebody who needs to be found by God. And that's what we're praying for. As, as, as I've been talking with Ken about, about this experience, it's, it's, it's about people who are going to come and sit in these seats and hear the gospel and need Jesus in a powerful, powerful way. 
And that's what we're praying for. And so this is a representation of that, is we're going to have opportunity to come and write a name and stick it on here, or write a description of somebody and stick it on here. And as we stick it, we're going to pray for those people, that family member, that friend, that person who we have thought in the past may be too far gone. It, maybe that person is in our life a Judah. And we've been holding on to something for 22 years because of something they did to us that betrayed us. But God needs to get a hold of them. And this is an opportunity for that, for them to find Jesus, because our purpose is to bring as many people to heaven as possible. And that's why he's planted all of us where he's planted us, to bring Jesus to anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody, irregardless of what we think or have thought or did think about anybody. They need Jesus just as much as you do. And so we're going to write these names on here, and we're going to stick them on here, and we're going to pray over these. And all throughout the week, every piece of paper that's on here, I'm going to come in here every day, and I'm going to pray over every name. I'm going to touch every paper. I'm going to pray over every paper. And this can be prayed for every single day between now and then. And you're welcome to come and pray uh, as well throughout the week and Wednesday nights or whatever. But it's going to be here. And so here in just a moment, the music team is going to come. And uh, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to the Lord and to come and write names and put it on this pew. And if you need to know Jesus, if you need to understand that no one is too far gone to be found by God, that he's coming to find you today, right now. That's why you're here in this room, or maybe you found this online. Maybe that's why we fixed the streaming today, is so you could see it and come to know Jesus. You need to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, all of them. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe in that, you gain salvation. You gain eternity. You gain a relationship with Jesus. And nothing you do tomorrow can undo what he did 2,000 years ago. It's already done. It's already taken care of. And you can find hope and you can find grace and you can find mercy in that. So the question for you then is, will you believe today? Will you believe in Jesus today? And I want to talk to you if you want to know Jesus. Whether you're in the room, if you're watching online, wherever you're watching, there's a button, a link right below wherever this is that says, I made a decision. You click on that, fill out the little form, just name, number, and what your decision was, and I'll call you today. And we'll talk about that and celebrate what God's doing in you. Uh, but I'll be down here as we sing this song. I'll be down here after we dismiss um, because I want to talk to you and pray with you and celebrate. But if you need to come and write a name down, and say, this is the person that God has. This is the person God's bringing to my mind right now. This is the person who is not too far gone to be found by God. This is the person who needs Jesus desperately. This is the person who needs hope. This is the person I'm bringing to Nights of Hope. Then right here, come down here and write that name and stick it on this pew and pray. Maybe God hadn't given you a name yet. Or maybe you're fighting him over the name he's already given you. And you just want to come and pray and say, God, I need, I need your grace. I, maybe like Corey Tinboom. You need to say, God, I, 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 I know you said love your enemies. God, I need you to give me that love for that person. Do you need to come and pray for that as well?